0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bone to Pick. I am Michael Davis, and we are coming to you today from Randolph, New Jersey, and the beautiful country home of the great Tom Bones Malone. Simply stated, Tom is one of the the most successful brass players in the history of New York brass playing. He has been a member of the CBS Orchestra, The Late Show with David Letterman, for over 20 years. He is an original member of the Saturday Night Live band, and he served as the musical director for four years there. Uh, He's an original member of the Blues Brothers Band, and uh, as a studio musician, he has recorded on over 1,000 records and CDs, 3,000 radio and television commercials, and 4,000 TV shows. Uh, As a solo artist, he's released two solo CDs, He is uh, active worldwide as a clinician, and when I was preparing for this interview, I've been a friend of Tom's for many, many years, but I wanted to just do a little bit of preparation. I downloaded his bio, and I can honestly say it would be easier to name the artists he has not played with than those he has. It is a formidable and impressive list, to say the least. So, first off, Tom, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to uh, spend some time today and talking about your uh, career and your amazing life in music. No, it's my
1: pleasure, Mike. All right, and uh, it's always a pleasure to hang out with uh, Mike Davis, the world-class trombone player. Nobody plays better than this guy, so uh, it's uh, he's, he's certainly my brother.
0: Oh, thank you to life. The feeling is mutual, and it's very, very kind of you to say. Um, let's jump right in on your early years and, and kind of reflect back on uh, you getting started in music. I know you were born in Hawaii, grew up there a little bit, but a lot of your time in Mississippi. Maybe just talk about. What drew you to music, and, and what made you gravitate to the trombone?
1: Well, uh, I, uh, I was born in Honolulu. Uh, my father was a Pearl Harbor survivor, U.S. Mm-hmm. US Navy pilot. And uh, we, uh, we lived a different place every year. We moved every year. I went to a different school every year. Uh, we, we went back to Hawaii when I was born, uh, where I was born, and we moved to... California and to Maryland and to Florida before my father retired when I was eleven uh, and bought a farm in South Mississippi. both my parents mm. were born and raised in South Mississippi, so it was sort of like uh, my parents coming home. but uh, I started playing violin at the age of five in uh, the Honolulu Youth Symphony, and I played uh, violin till I was ten and for some reason gave it up uh, when I was uh, 11, I, I saw the marching band outside the window at the school <laughs> in Mississippi, and I decided I wanted to play in the band. So, uh, well, they they announced at the school that anybody who was interested in playing in the band should come to the band hall on Thursday night. And the guy from the music store had all the instruments laid out there. So I picked up a trombone, and I could I could almost play it. Uh, my, my father asked how much it was, and he said, we can't afford it. So we're, as we're walking out, uh, the band director grabs me and says, well, the school has a tuba, and it doesn't cost anything to play it. So I said, okay. So I started playing the tuba. I learned how to play the tuba and started playing in the, uh, the marching band. Now, this was not a glamorous band. We're talking <laughs> about uh, a little town in South Mississippi with a population 819. Uh, the school was kindergarten through 12 in one school. So we had a 28-piece marching band, and there was usually six or seven high school students in the band, and the rest were like from fourth grade on. Uh, junior high and elementary school students. So the caliber of the music was not that difficult. Uh, matter of fact, the marching band played the Bennett Band book number one, and that was our entire repertoire. <laughs> so uh, I learned to play the tuba parts to, the, to this, this marching band music. Uh, and uh, the next year, we changed band directors, and the new band director was a trombone player, and he knew I was interested in playing the trombone. Uh, so he loaned me his trombone. He you want to play trombone, he showed me where the positions were, and he says, go home and learn how to play this. So I did, and I learned to play the, the trombone parts in about three weeks. Uh, and I was still looking for some sort of musical challenge, and I didn't know very much about what was going on, but I was interested in it. So uh, my little brother got a cornet, and uh, when he wasn't playing it, I learned how to play the cornet. Uh, my first actual professional job was playing bugle at the boy scout camp when I was 13 and it it was a great paying gig it paid five dollars a week and a tent (laughs) and three meals a day in the mess hall and I thought I was on top of the world Uh, when I was 14 some guys came over to my house and said uh, we're going to start a rock and roll band there was a couple guitar players and a drummer and a saxophone player so I said yeah so we they started setting up and I got my trombone out and they looked at me like I was crazy this is 1961 and, and I said, what's up? And they said, you don't have trombones in rock and roll bands. And that was indeed true at the time in 1961. All you had was uh, uh, tenor saxes and maybe a baritone sax in, uh, in rock and roll music. Uh, very, uh, very few bands even had uh, trumpet. So I, I said, well, what am I supposed to play? And I didn't know anything about jazz or rock and roll or much of anything, really. And uh, th- they said, you got to play saxophone. So my friend happened to have a, an alto and a tenor with him that night and so uh, that night he started teaching me how to play tenor sax and i wanted to learn because i wanted to be in the band and you know get chicks and all the usual stuff <laughs> the young musicians are, are into uh we were doing gigs with that band in about a month uh and we were playing stuff by ray charles and uh we played early beatles stuff and uh, uh whatever we could uh whatever we could figure out and we played in in really sleazy places really sleazy bars and uh and sock hops and stuff like that.
0: Wow, that is awesome! It's kind of gives some insight into your amazing ability to double because it's like it, it seems like it was so natural for you from early on. You're already playing trumpet and saxophone and trombone. That's so. I've been actually stories. playing
1: playing these uh, trumpet and trombone and tuba and saxophone since for uh, fifty two years.
0: Yeah, awesome! That's great, great stuff. Well, let's uh, fast forward a little bit into your collegiate career. Uh, you went to the the great north texas state one of the uh, one of the premier jazz programs uh, anywhere in the world for the last fifty years at least and uh, I have my own story that i 'd just like to share with everybody when I was in high school. Uh, my dad is a jazz educator, and I would always go to tower records back then they had record stores and we 'd go as we all know and look at the l p s and uh, and North Texas was the only college program that would put out their lab band records in, uh, every year. And for those of you who don't know, at North Texas, they have the bands, uh, they call the 1 o'clock band 2 o'clock all the way down. So the top band is the 1 o'clock band because they meet at 1 o'clock. So the best players were in the 1 o'clock. And I looked at the, I guess it was around Lab 1968, 69, something like that. And, uh, and I looked, and the lead trombone player's name was Tom Malone. And Tom already had a very successful professional career at this point, so I knew his name very well. And then I look down and I see, oh, Tom Malone is also playing lead trumpet in the three o'clock band. And that's just blew my mind and still blows my mind. It's like somebody who could do those two things. It's, it's quite impressive. But at any rate, Tom, maybe you could share <clears throat> some of your thoughts and memories about that time. Of course, the great Leon Breeden was running the program, but maybe even more importantly, you were there with such great uh, classmates all the way from Gary Grant and Lou Marini, who would, of course, be a lifelong professional colleague of yours. Um, but maybe just talk about that. And I know uh, you were already starting to do some arranging and contracting. It, it just seemed like a precursor to what your professional career would be. But anyway, any thoughts about the, the, that time in North Texas?
1: Well, um, uh, when I was still in high school, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to play something besides marches on the trombone. And uh, so I went to the music store. And we were a poor farm family. We didn't really have a lot of money. So I saved up enough money to buy a record. And this was, believe it or not, you could go to the record store in 1962, you could go to the record store and listen to a record before you bought it. I know that's mm. so hard to believe for uh, some of mm-hmm. you younger people, but uh, uh, I found this record called The Persuasive Trombone of Irby Green. So I bought this record and I took it home, and that was literally the only record I had for about a year. And I just loved the way Irby Green sounded, and I, I played along with him, uh, and he didn't know it, but he was my teacher. I just imitated Irby Green. All I want, And that's still my aspiration in my life, is to sound as good as Irby Green.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> and and there, was no,
1: there was nobody around to tell me that, well, it was impossible or it was difficult. I was just sitting out on the, uh, the farm uh, by myself, uh, just uh, trying to simulate this music. So my, I first went to college at uh, University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg for a couple of years, uh, 65 to 67. Uh, in, uh, in, in the spring of 67 the jazz band from University of Southern Mississippi went to the Mobile Jazz Festival. uh, And we were playing some of my arrangements, and I had a couple of solos. Uh, The North Texas band was there uh, with (laughs) Lou Lou Marini on saxophone. (laughs) So I met Lou there, and I heard his band play, and he heard my band play, and he said, "Uh, man, you should really transfer to North Texas next year. So I took his advice, and that was one of the... uh, Best things that I think I ever did in my Mm -hmm. life was to transfer to North Texas. Suddenly, you've got all these uh, great musicians from all over the United States, and it was very competitive. But uh, I've always thought from an educational viewpoint, uh, musically, that uh, the caliber of musicians that you play with brings your own level up The higher the caliber of the people around you. Uh, And I had people um, to learn from, Uh, not so much uh, formal study, but I, I... I listened to musicians playing next to me Mm -hmm. and I learned a lot. I was Mm -hmm. always observant. That was my main way of learning how to play trumpet and trombone and saxophone was just uh, standing next to great players and observing very carefully and listening very carefully. Mm
0: -hmm. So, uh,
1: now I'm in North Texas and I'm playing with uh, Bruce Fowler, Gary Grant, Jay Saunders, (laughs) Lou Marie, Jim Riggs, uh, Dean Parks, uh, Ed Sof, and uh, a whole long list of uh, great musicians.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's such, uh, I, I echo everything you just said. I think when you, you're around those great musicians, your level just goes up, especially if you're doing like you you just described. A very great piece of advice for all of us is always listening and checking out what's going on around you. That's when you can really improve. Formal study aside, that's I totally agree with you on that.
1: I didn't really take lessons because I was a psychology major. So, uh, these playing next to uh, great musicians w- was my lesson. Mm-hmm. That was my study.
0: Mm. Yeah, indeed. Great words there. Well, following North Texas State, then you immediately started working. We were talking a little bit before the interview, and, and you could share some of the stories. But um, the likes of Woody Herman, Frank Zappa, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. But uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about Woody's Man, because I know there's, again, like so many great musicians, including Bill Chase and Bobby Burgess and Sal Nestico, but uh, what was your time like uh, on the on that band?
1: That was a great experience, uh, and it was also a very sort of real-world experience of, of being on the road and uh, dealing with the day-to-day life. Uh, it, it, it's not glamorous. <laughs> you do one-nighters and you ride on the bus, uh, and you sometimes you check in every other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you ride all night on the bus and get to town and check in at six or seven in the morning and sleep during the day and then go do a gig, and then you... Go back to the hotel and sleep and then ride the bus all day the next day. Uh, However, playing with people like Bob Burgess and Hal Crook, uh, Sal Nistico, Ronnie Kuber, um, uh, Harry Hall, John Madrid, um, these were really great musical experiences for me. Uh, Playing with Bob Burgess, the greatest lead trombone player of all time. Yeah, well, uh, indeed. Irby and and Bob Burgess were close Right. Uh, close uh, uh, competition there of, of you're two great players. Yeah. So, uh, and um, which reminds me, when I was at North Texas State, uh, my senior year, uh, Leon Breeden brought in uh, Irby Green as a clinician. <laughs> oh, that's so now I'm on stage swapping fours with Irby Green. <laughs> and uh, this this was just like too good to be true. Uh, it, uh, even today, I go out and do clinics and, and uh concerts with school bands just because of what Irby did to me. Yeah. <laughs> I, the impact. I want to do that for uh, young kids.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, don't feel,
1: I don't feel like I play that well, really, but now I have a lot of experience and I want to share that experience while I can.
0: Yeah. Well, I do think you play great and, and, you, and musicality that you bring in the, the wide range, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later in the interview, but so important and valuable for students to be able to tap into somebody with your range of expertise. Um, so, and right around that time I, I, you moved to New York and you were doing these gigs and then, and then you decided to, maybe you could tell us what that move to New York was like and that first little bit of time in New York was what that was like for you.
1: Well, I was, I was actually doing a lot of professional work in the Dallas area. Uh, uh, I was, I, I was with Woody in the summer of 69 and I went back in the fall of 69, I went back to North Texas to, uh, work on a master's degree in psychology. And, uh, uh, there was a lot of different things that happened that semester, but, uh, uh, on the spur of the moment, January nineteen seventy, I decided to move to New York, and uh, uh, I was just crashing on Bobby Burgess's floor. Yeah, I had no gigs, didn't know anybody, uh, and it took you had to you had to uh, wait six months uh, after you applied for your musicians union card before you could take a steady job. Mm. So I just practiced and uh, did whatever I could. Uh, Bob Burgess was playing uh, Promises, Promises on Broadway at the time, so I. Uh, Started subbing for him, but um, the, I remember the I was practicing at the apartment, and the phone rang one night, and uh, this guy says, "We need uh, Bob Burgess to play at the Club Baron on 136th Street tonight with the Clark Terry Big Band," and I knew Bob Burgess wouldn't get home till 11:30 uh, or so, and the gig started at 10. So I just said he'll be there and I showed up with my trombone and uh it was I met some un- unbelievable musicians there Frank West Frank Foster um uh Dave Bargeron, Howard Johnson uh awesome. Charles Sullivan uh Victor Paz uh, Dizzy Gillespie came by and sat in
0: wow awesome. rhythm, sec-
1: rhythm section was uh Bob Crenshaw and Mickey Roker <laughs> so uh this was, uh, and Clark Terry, of course, the brilliant Clark Terry, this was, uh, uh, just blew my mind. And suddenly, here I am in New York playing with all the best guys in the world. Uh, but uh, it wasn't that glamorous. I scuffled around and, and picked up whatever jobs I could. And um, uh, one night, uh, Bob Burgess and I were at Jim and Andy's, and uh, he introduced me to a guy named Bob Pearson, who was a tenor sax player who had played with Woody. And, uh, and Bob says, uh, this kid is a good trombone player. This kid is a good trombone player and bass trombone player. And when he, when he said bass trombone, this guy's eyes lit up. And he, I gave him my phone number. He called me the next day and hired me to play at the Waldorf Astoria six nights a week, playing two shows a night. Uh, this They had a house band that played dance music for... They were there for an entire six hours. Uh, and uh, I just came in and played bass trombone on two shows that were about... An hour long, uh, but it was quite quite a good band. Uh, Jerry Dodgen on lead alto, uh, Bob Millikan on lead trumpet, mm. um, Yusuf Lateef on tenor flute. Oh, wow. oh. that's
0: awesome! Yeah,
1: Joe, uh, <laughs> Joe Temperley on baritone sax, uh, Quentin Butter Jackson from uh, Duke Ellington's band. Uh, uh, it was just uh, just an amazing gig. And I couldn't believe it. We did basically uh, Las Vegas type acts like um, uh, Johnny Mathis, um, uh, Sonny and Cher, uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of really good, good uh, written orchestrations. So uh, that that turned out to be quite a, a fun gig. Well, Alan Raff got my name somehow and started sending me in to sub for him. Alan Raff was quite busy
0: mm-hmm.
1: professional bass trombone player at the time. We're talking about the fall of 1970. Uh, so he would, uh, he would send me in to sub for him on Broadway shows when he would take recordings. And he would take every job that he was offered. And the night before, he would sort out which one he wanted to do, and he'd call me to do the other one. <laughs> and, uh, and, if I, and, and if he had three gigs, he would uh, uh, call Vinnie Fanuel, who was a student oh, of okay. his at the time, sure, who sure. was also quite, quite a good bass trombone player. Sure. Um, so, uh, suddenly, I was uh, on the recording scene. Uh, I remember he, uh, one, of the, one of Alan's throwaway gigs was Turn the Beat Around by Vicki Sue Robinson. <laughs> so, now I'm in circulation. Uh, and I had uh, also uh, started playing with a band called Ten Wheel Drive in 1971, which was a, a rock band with five horns. Right, It yeah. was three trumpets, trombone, and barry Sax. And uh, about the same time, I uh, uh, met up with Bill Watrous. And Bill really wanted to play in a rock and roll band at the time. Mm. And Bill and I became friends. We started hanging out. And uh, I'd go over to his house, and we would practice together. And uh, he really wanted to play in 10-wheel in drive. But there was only one trombone chair. So I said, well, why don't you play in the band, and I'll play trumpet? And so uh, Bill and I, from that point on, Bill and I were best of friends. And we are still best of friends. Uh, so Bill started sending me in to sub for him on recording sessions, and uh, uh, that's kind of the way I got in, involved in the recording scene in New York.
0: Wow, that's awesome. Amazingly fruitful time for New York, too, just hearing, and just the fact that you could run into Yusuf Latif at the Waldorf Astoria, like, it's, just like, amazing, you know, to think of... Uh, uh, what was going on at that time, and, and just the variety of musicians you'd see in the in the different situations, musical situations. Well,
1: Youssef and I hung out quite a bit, actually. Um, I enrolled uh, in the fall of 1970. I enrolled in graduate school in psychology at the New School. Oh, wow! Okay. Yeah. And Youssef was working on a Ph.D. in philosophy at the time, hmm. so we would uh, we would um, uh, get together and go to. We were both vegetarians, so we would get together and go to the macrobiotic restaurants in the East Village after school. Uh, you know, between uh, school and the um, the gig at the Waldorf, mm. and so uh, I ended up uh, getting to know him quite well. And he was quite an impressive man, not just musically.
0: Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. interesting. Well, as we uh, as we fast forward a couple of years in 1975, you were tapped to to join the uh, at that time a very revolutionary comedy show, which became known as Saturday Night Live. Um, you held down the trombone chair for about ten years. You served as musical director for four years. I think we could do an entire interview just on your years at Saturday Night Live, I'm sure. But uh, can you just talk as much as you'd like and about whatever you'd like to talk about, about what the experience was like being on Saturday Night Live and being with all those, those great actors and actresses at the time? And, and, and the band, too, was, was amazing. But just what it was like being a part of that uh, amazing show and what, the, what those experiences were like.
1: Well, uh, it actually all started when, um, I guess it was around, I'm, I'm thinking it was around 1971 or 72 I have to do a little math. Um, a trumpet player named Hannibal Marvin Peterson, who was at North Texas State, a jazz trumpet player, came came up to New York, and now he's crashing on my floor. And he <laughs> was playing with uh, Rasan Roland Kirk, and he started also playing with Gil Evans. One night he had two gigs, he, uh, and uh, the gig with Gil Evans didn't pay any money. So he sent me in to sub for him on trumpet at West at the West Best Cabaret <laughs> with the Gil Evans Orchestra. It was Gil Evans' 60th birthday that particular day. Mm, wow. And... Uh, so I met several people who changed the rest of my life that night. Um, Luce Dave Bargeron, Howard Johnson, Bruce Ditmas, uh, David Horowitz, uh, Billy Harper, uh, yeah, uh, David Sanborn, uh, so I ended up, uh, Howard Johnson, um, was asked to put a horn section together for, um. Saturday Night Live, and he suggested me. Mm. Howard liked me because I played tuba, and I played a bunch of different instruments. Howard, as you know, Howard Johnson, uh, legendary musician, plays baritone sax, tuba, uh, trumpet, uh, uh, bass clarinet, you know, plays a whole bunch of instruments too. So Howard and I instantly got together, and we played together with Gil Evans for 15 years. Uh, and, uh, but Howard recommended me for the original uh, band at Saturday Night Live. And I ended up, uh, the, the original tenor player somehow didn't work out. And I ended up recommending Lou Marini who came in about the fifth or sixth show and did the rest of the, the run of that show. Uh, but I had a, had a great time on that show. Um, I, I became the arranger along with Paul Schaefer. I met Paul Schaefer at the, uh, at the beginning of Saturday Night Live and we became the arranging team for the show, uh, uh, it was wild and crazy back then. Uh, I don't think the show is quite what it used to be now, but um, back in those days, uh, there was a lot of creativity and uh, a lot of talent. Yeah. Uh, and playing, playing music uh, was a lot of fun. It was a long work day on Saturday. We got there at 11 a.m., and we worked until 1 a.m.
0: So it was just limited to that one day you wouldn't do. I mean, as for a pre-production, did, sometimes so.
1: we did pre-pre-records on Friday night also, but it was pretty much everything usually happened on that one day. And uh, uh, it it was a long day and we did two entire shows. We did a, a dress rehearsal with an entire audience before the air show, and it was indeed live. It was not mm. they they had tape running, but it was actually broadcast live. What you saw was what was going on mm. uh, between uh 11:30 and 1 I remember the first show, too, October 3rd, 1975, uh, the the stage manager, Joe Dixo, he's counting down the show, he says, two minutes to air, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, there's going to be 15 million people watching this show. This is going to be exciting. One minute to air. What if I miss a note? <laughs> oh, my God, 15 million people are going to hear me. So, frankly, I got a little, uh, little nervous at that point. Ten. Nine, eight, seven. But I got through the first show, and things got much easier after that. And now, um, 4,200 live TV shows later, uh, it's no big deal.
0: (laughs) That is awesome, yeah. Born out of uh, Saturday Night Live was uh, the band that came to be known as the Blues Brothers. And uh, you shared the story earlier. I kind of thought your nickname came from the Blues Brothers, but in fact it didn't. But it uh, maybe kind of became... to everybody's consciousness. It became aware of it at that point. But of course, you're working with the great John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. And um, maybe just talk about what, was, what it was like as, as that band started. And then be, it became obviously a very successful entity on its own outside of Saturday Night Live. But what, what was that? Uh,
1: well, like? the, the Blues Brothers almost didn't get started at all. Here's the real story. Uh, John and Danny went to San Francisco one weekend and they hung out with a harmonica player named Curtis Salgado. Uh, he was a harmonica player with the... Um, uh, it, it was a blues harmonica player that played with uh, uh, a blues band, and they stayed up all night and listened to blues records. Um, so on the, on the airplane coming back to New York the next day, John and Danny started talking about uh, developing some characters based on the blues. Uh, John was from Chicago, But he was sort of a a rock garage drummer. That was his Mm. musical interest. And he didn't really know about the blues, even though the blues are closely associated with Chicago. However, Dan Aykroyd was involved in the blues scene in Toronto, and he played harmonica, and he knew all the Delta blues musicians, and he knew a lot about the history of of blues. So he started explaining all this to John, and uh, they came up with these two characters. So I get a call from the music director, Howard Shore, and he says, can you meet with Danny and John in their office? And they started telling me about these two characters that were orphans and they were, sort of had flat emotional responses to everything. Uh, one guy was fat and one guy was skinny, but they wore the same size suit. So it looked <laughs> equally absurd on both of them. Uh, and it, so as they're developing the characters, they work, started working out dance steps and stuff like that. So, so what do you want from me, guys? And they said, well, we need a, an arrangement of Rocket 88 by James Cotton. So I found this obscure record and uh, wrote an arrangement for the Saturday Night Live Band and we rehearsed the song. And we did it for Lauren Michaels. Uh, and we didn't make the show. <laughs> uh, but not to be discouraged, uh, Danny and John uh, continued to develop these characters and, and so they asked me to write an arrangement of Hey Bartender. So this is the second week of the Blues pitching the Blues Brothers for the show. We did the Hey Bartender for the uh, for for Lauren Michaels, and he said, frankly, I don't see anything funny about the Blues Brothers. <laughs> so uh, Danny and John were a bit discouraged. Uh, the third week in a row, we did not present anything. Uh, after read-through, Lauren Michaels is tearing his hair out saying, the show's three minutes short. What are we going to do? John and Danny jumped on him and said, Lorne, the Blues Brothers... And so, as if to say, well, we've got nothing worthwhile to put in the three minutes. We might as well let you guys make fools of yourselves. He says, okay, the Blues Brothers are on the show, but if the show runs long, we're going to cut you. Well, the show did not run long. The Blues Brothers appeared and did the song, (laughs) Hey, Bartender. And apparently the viewing audience thought that the Blues Brothers were entertaining because we got a lot of telephone calls and letters and cards from the viewing audience uh, expressing their pleasure with the Blues Brothers. So we ended up playing again. Uh, Before you know it, we had a record deal with Atlantic Records. And before you know it, we were doing a a movie for Universal Pictures. So it it turned into something huge and it almost never got off the ground.
0: Wow. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah, I mean, that that movie still, you stop anybody on the street now. It's like, I mean, you must get that all the time. Even though you're on TV every night, people still like, uh, Oh, yeah, trombones blowing from the movie.
1: Well, John Belushi told me that he was going to make me the most famous trombone player since (laughs) Jimmy Dorsey. (laughs) And I never had the heart to tell him that Jimmy Dorsey was the saxophone player of the Dorsey Brothers. But uh, anyway, I knew what he... I knew what he was going for.
0: Yeah, I think he. He meant well. I think he achieved it. <laughs> Just one name, but one first name difference. Uh, that, 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 that's did, awesome. did not hurt my career. No, that that is fantastic. Well, in 1993, you were reunited with with Paul Schaefer and Willie, who you worked with on uh, Saturday Night Live, and uh, you joined the CBS Orchestra the Late Show with David Letterman. Um, now it's over uh, 20 years, and you said it was the four thousands show. Four uh,
1: thousands show on CBS yesterday. Yesterday, so. Yes. Uh,
0: Clearly, it has legs, and uh, it's—you've uh, uh, been doing amazing work for so many years now. Um, what has that experience been like? What's what's David Letterman like? What's uh, how would you compare it and contrast it to the Saturday Night Live experience?
1: Well, it actually goes way back. Um, I, I when I was a music director at Saturday Night Live from '81 to '85, and in 1982, I got a call from um, a lady named Liz Anderson, and she uh, she says she was my unit manager. She filled out the union contracts for the band at Saturday Night Live. Uh, nice young lady, and she said, I got a new job. And I said, congratulations, what's your new job? She says, I'm the associate producer of the David Letterman Show. And I said, what is that? She says, you've never seen it. It comes on real early in the morning. But we are going to change the show to late, late night. And we are looking for a musical director to lead a four-piece band. She says, I know you're working, so you're not going to do it. But could you recommend somebody? So I said, yes, you should should call this kid Paul Schaefer. Oh, wow. He just got back from Los Angeles. He he went to Los Angeles to be an actor in a a, a, a sitcom called A Year at the Top with Greg Avigan. It lasted about four or five episodes, and the network pulled the plug on it. So Paul had just gotten back to town. And so I told Liz, well, you should call this kid Paul Schaefer. He'll take care of it. Uh, Paul, as we all know, has a, a magical... Uh, connection with uh, music and comedy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and two or three weeks later, I happened to be looking on my network feed monitor in my office at Saturday Night Live, and there's Paul rehearsing a band with Steve Jordan, uh, Hiram Bullock, and Will Lee. So, uh, in, in 1993, when the show moved from NBC to CBS, uh, they got a lot of, um, a lot of pressure from the network to in- enlarge the band, because other shows in that slot had larger bands than just Paul's four-piece band. So uh, he added a couple of horns, and I was uh, one of the horns. I was actually uh, the trumpet player. He hired a trumpet player and a, and a tenor sax player. So I basically played... Um, I was a trumpet player basically for about the first four years, and then he added Al Chez on trumpet, so I mm-hmm. moved over to playing more trombone and baritone sax and, and piccolo and other instruments. So, but working with Paul Schaefer is amazing. Paul has perfect auditory recall. He remembers everything he's ever heard. He remembers everything that's gone into his ears, and not just music, but conversations. He remembers conversations word for word that he and I had in 1975. Remember when I said this and you said this and I said this? And uh, it's it's pretty amazing. Uh, working with Paul has made my own memory better because I mean it's sort of the evolution of thought that uh, when you see that somebody else can do something, you decide well you can do it. You're, you can do that too. Right. Right. And you, so you push. The envelope.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Uh,
1: and uh, uh, so, he, Paul. Here's a song once, and he's got it totally memorized. He doesn't need a chart. Uh, and it, it, it at first was a little intimidating uh, working with him at uh, at the show. But uh, uh, and now, uh, I, you know, my own, my own memory has improved, and uh, I know the way Paul works. He works very fast. His mind works very fast. His father was an attorney who worked until he was eighty six. So oh, wow. uh, I guess gives wow. you a little clue into his uh, his mentality. Paul has a degree in sociology from the University of Toronto.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, Dave Letterman uh, uh, off stage is actually very sort of sane and sort of quiet and uh, and, and sort of polite. Uh, we we don't have a lot of uh, conversation, but he's very polite. You know, have have a nice weekend. How are you? Uh, you know, it's sort of small talk like that, but. Mm-hmm. In his own words, uh, he is either doing a show or thinking about doing a show. So he's preoccupied all the time. When he comes from the office to the uh, dressing room, they clear the clear the halls and they clear the elevators. He doesn't see anybody. Mm. They have a series of people with walkie talkies that um, his he doesn't run into anybody.
0: Wow! Just to keep his mind clear and focused. on right. Exactly. Yeah.
1: He doesn't. He doesn't need any distraction. Uh, And he works works with a small group of people on the show, a group of uh, producers and writers uh, that he's quite close with. But uh, uh, his mind works very fast. Uh, He tries to portray himself on the show as being sort of a um, less than intelligent person. But in reality, he is uh, very quick and uh, very educated Uh, Every night he comes out and warms up the audience a little bit before the show actually goes on the air. And uh, he he just calls on people randomly in the audience and asks them where they're from. And he starts spouting off information about their hometown that uh, is uh, uh, unbelievable.
0: Wow. His
1: his, his body of knowledge.
0: uh Uh-huh. Sounds like him and Paul have that in common in terms of the the intellectual.
1: They uh, they work at the same speed mentally, I think. Wow. Which is part of their um, simpatico. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, very cool. Thanks for sharing all that, Tom. That's amazing uh, insight into that, the operation. That's great. Um, I wanted to ask you just a couple more kind of specific musical questions. We touched on it earlier in the interview about your amazing doubling prowess, which is uh, world-class. I mean, there's very few people who can play so many instruments at such a high level that you've achieved. Um, I, now, I, I notice now with younger players, a lot of players are, are becoming multi-instrumentalists just because of the, the economics of things. It's helpful if you can do more than just one thing. Um, if, you, if you could give a piece of advice and maybe some insight into your success that you've had, what, what would you offer in terms of how you approach doubling? And especially for you, you're playing unrelated instruments. It's, not, it's one thing to play trombone and bass, trombone, and euphonium, but it's another thing to play trumpet and then tenor sax and bari sax and piccolo and all the things that you're able to do. So if you if it was possible to capsulize your thought process as far as doubling goes, what might that be?
1: Uh, I, I think of the instruments as all being related. I, I think of the uh, the embouchure muscles to play all the wind instruments are, are similar. It's the it strengths in the corners of the embouchure that it's important. Uh, it's the same corners that play the flute, that play the trumpet, that play the saxophone, and I I see um, similarities in the fingering of uh, saxophone and trumpet, for instance. Hmm. And there's a direct relationship between um, valve brass instruments, such as the tuba and the trumpet and the euphonium, or the valve trombone, or the bass trumpet, and the trombone slide positions. I figured that out at a a very young age, Hmm. that second position was the same as second valve, et cetera, et cetera. So that allowed me to transfer the knowledge that I had of playing the tuba into the trombone. And uh, and then I realized that when I started playing my little brother's cornet, I realized that the Trumpet is just a big, big tuba. Mm. Just a, you know, it's an octave, octave difference. Uh, and I had no psychological hang-ups. Uh, I, I, I was told by many music teachers that I should not be fooling around with these other instruments. But um, in my own path led me a different way. Uh, I started playing the saxophone because I wanted to play in the band. I didn't play saxophone at the time, but I wanted to be in the band. And uh, playing other instruments has opened up opportunities, opportunities for me that. Never would have happened had I only played the trombone. Uh, uh, for instance, I got the job with uh, uh, Frank Zappa, in a very strange way. I was playing with Doc Severinsen's weekend band, when Doc Severinsen was still in New York. Um, one of the weekend gigs we did was uh, playing on The Tonight Show in LA, about the time that The show moved from, the Tonight Show moved from New York to Los Angeles. So it was uh, Doc Severinson's now Generation Brass, with Today's Children. Mm. So we did a Chicago song, and I ended up playing the, the, the solo on the Only the Beginnings on the national TV. I think that was my first solo on national TV. So uh, uh, after the gig, we go back to the hotel room, and Lou Marini and I are hanging out with uh, Sal Marquez, and he l- later, later played trumpet on The Tonight Show right, with Branford Marsalis. Anyway, uh, Sal Marquez was in school with Lou and I at uh, North Texas, and so we're hanging out in the room, doing whatever musicians do when they hang out. and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Sal tells me says I'm playing with Frank Zappa now he says he has a 20 piece band called the Grand Wazoo Uh, he says um, Howard Johnson is playing tuba in the band but he's moving back to New York next week do you know anybody that plays tuba and about that time Sal tripped over my tuba that was on the floor in the room (laughs) in the hotel room I was playing uh, essentially playing tuba and bass trombone with Doc's band and I would play solos on the tenor trombone so uh, after tripping over the tuba Uh, Sal says you play tuba don't you Tom and I said yes he says you want to play with Frank and I said yes so he gets Frank on the phone he calls from the hotel room phone and he says uh, he's talking to Frank well yeah he's my buddy blah 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 and then Frank obviously asks him how does he play and he says well Frank to be honest with you I've never heard him play and he looks over at me and he says how do you play (laughs) so I picked up the tuba and played it over the telephone and Frank hired me so if I hadn't played the tuba I never would have gotten that gig with Frank. We went over to Frank's house the next day, and uh, Frank says, Sal tells me you play some other instruments besides a tuba. And I said, yes. He said, well, give me a list. So I wrote him a list. I said, uh, piccolo, piccolo trumpet, trumpet, trombone, bass trombone, tenor sax. And I showed up for rehearsal two weeks later, and Frank had rewritten all of his music so that I had a part on every instrument that was on the list. Wow. Uh, and um, so now I'm playing piccolo trumpet next to Malcolm McNabb who as uh, some of you know is the, uh, the the film trumpet player in Los Angeles. Yeah. One of the, uh, all one of the best. Great. Yeah. No yeah. question. He plays the uh, Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto on the trumpet. Uh, and uh, so and then there was a uh, like uh, I played with Frank for quite a while. I played did the Grand Wazoo Tour. I did uh, a, a tour with a 12-piece version of uh, uh, The Mothers of Invention. Then I did a tour with a 10-piece version of The Mothers of Invention. Then um, Frank says, next tour I'm cutting the band down to six pieces, and there's going to be one horn, and that one horn is going to be Bruce Fowler. So uh, I understand you play uh, bass. Would you like to audition on bass? So I, <laughs> I said, sure. So I showed up at Frank's house uh, with my electric bass, and I remember George Duke was there, and uh, and I, I, thought I, I thought I sounded pretty good. And um, so I went home and I didn't hear from Frank. And I, I heard that he was auditioning other people, people that had played with him before, people that sang and played bass. And so I'm sitting around Los Angeles and it was no gig. And uh, so I called Frank's house and he didn't call me back. And I, uh, and I called Frank's house again and left a message and he, and he didn't call me back. And so I got a call from Dave Bargeron one day and he says, we need a trumpet player to play with Blood, Sweat and Tears. Uh, Chuck Winfield is leaving the band. Can you be here tomorrow? He was calling from New York. Wow. And I said yes. Uh, so I, I packed up all my stuff and checked it on the plane and moved back to New York the next day. And uh, Frank called my house the same day I left and to confirm that I had the job playing bass with him, <laughs> with jean louis Ponty and George Duke. Uh, and and uh, it, with... Um, three tours of Europe and a tour of Japan for twice the money that Blood, Sweat, and Tears was going to pay me. Wow! So anyway, I never looked back. I recommended a fellow named Tom Fowler, who was Bruce Fowler's brother, and and Tom Fowler, amazing bass player. He ended up playing with Frank for quite a few years, and uh, you know the rest is sort of history. And um, and I, but I never would have gotten the call from Frank to play bass if I hadn't played it, and I never would have gotten the call to play with Blood, Sweat, and Tears if I had not. Um, played the trumpet. So playing these other instruments has has certainly helped my career.
0: Yeah, that is awesome. Wow. It just shows you the uh, thread that weaves through the whole thing. You know, Tom, you said something at the beginning of that uh, that I thought was amazing. And I think it speaks to the power of the mind when you said, oh, I look at all of them as related. Because I think, you know, especially as music school graduates, and we all think, oh, I couldn't, you know, I have to just do my thing and, you know, focus on that. But I love that your mindset, and that speaks to your career and everything everything about you. It's like you're, it's all, it's possible, you know. Is and you're it, they're related. I think that's a, you kind of capsulized it in one sentence. How how that, that the way you look at it. And I think that that's, a, I think we can all learn a lot from that. Um, Tom, I just wanted to, there's a few folks that uh, I know you are very fond of, and I just wanted to just play a little quick name association and toss out a few names and just have you give me. Uh, quick thoughts about what you think of these amazing musicians and great friends and colleagues of yours. Um, we've talked about them a little bit, but let's talk about just uh, Lou Marini to start with.
1: Oh, well, of course, I told you about how Lou Marini changed my life by suggesting that I transfer to North Texas. And uh, uh, we have played together with so many bands. We've played uh, on the road with uh, Doc Severinsen's weekend band in 1971. Um, let's see, then I moved to Los Angeles to play with Frank Zappa, but then I, came back to New York to play with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and Lou was playing saxophone with Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Mm-hmm. I was there for the entire um, year of 1973 with Blood, Sweat, and Tears. With, and the the, Trump, the the horn section was uh, Lou Marini, Lou Soloff, Dave on and myself. And we uh, we did a tour of Europe and played all over the United States, and it uh, uh, was just an incredible experience for me. Uh, Lou is one of my dearest and best friends. uh, uh we played together in with Saturday Night Live for eight years, and uh, we're still the best of friends. Uh, can't think of a, a better person, awesome. in the world. The late amazing you know, uh, musician,
0: yeah, no, no question. Um, and I know this gentleman is very close to you, your heart. Um, the late great Alan Rubin, a section mate of yours for a long time, with Lou on Saturday Night Live.
1: Uh, just like Lou Marini taught me a lot about how, how to play the saxophone I learned a lot about it. playing the trumpet from Alan Rubin uh, Alan Rubin uh, was uh, uh, you know, one of the cleanest most in tune uh, precise trumpet players I've ever heard uh, he went to Juilliard for a couple of years and then went out on the road with uh, Robert Goulet uh, I actually met Alan many, many years ago. Um, in, in 1967, I went out on the road with the um, Jimmy Dorsey band, and we were in New York playing at the, at the, the Rainbow Room in the Empire State Building in the, in the basement. We were playing. Uh, we did a, it was about a six-hour gig, including two shows with Bob Eberly and Helen O'Connell. Uh, the lead trumpet player died at the President Hotel Oh, my gosh. And so I'm like, what, what are we going to do tonight? Who's going to play lead trumpet? And we'll say, well, we got this kid that plays with, the, with Robert Goulet who's going to um, play tonight. And then we have a guy coming in tomorrow who's going to do the job steady. So Alan Rubin walks in. Sight reads all the music. <laughs> Sight reads all the music for six hours Perfectly. Sounded better than the regular guy that had been there for all these years. And um, so at the end of the gig, uh, Lee Castle is paying him out in front of the bandstand. And he gives Alan the money and he says, Yeah, kid, you sounded pretty good. And Alan says, Yeah, I sounded a hell of a lot better than you did, Lee. (laughs) As you know, Lee Lee Castle was a trumpet player who had actually played with the Dorsey Brothers band. And he was in his uh, later years at the time. So uh, Alan... That was a little encapsulation of Alan's sense of humor. He's also one of the funniest guys I ever met, and I really miss the guy. Uh, uh, Lou and uh, Alan and I had a certain uh, chemistry of playing together that was magic. yeah, and
0: uh, I always thought that was such an amazing section and uh, I didn't of course, I wasn't nearly as close to Alan as you were, but uh we all miss him and, and I know every time I saw him, I was on the floor laughing. it's something he said because it was just <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> whatever was coming in his mind out his mouth was just unbelievable. Nothing was sacred down. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple more names. Um, here's a gentleman who lives out in Los Angeles, but you work with him quite a bit, Tom Scott.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, I, I When I was uh, in Los Angeles with uh, the Grand Wazoo, uh, there was a gentleman in the Grand Wazoo named Kenny Schroyer who was a studio-based trombone player of merit, And uh, uh, he called me up one day and said, can you cover this date for me at uh, Universal Pictures? So, I went over there and played this recording session, and I met this young um, flute oboe player named Tom Scott, who was on the session, and he took me out to lunch just like that. He he didn't know who I was or or anything, but he just and I would already heard of this guy, so and he was just very nice to me. Um, now years later, um, I'm in New York, my wife is pregnant with my second child, and. Um, uh, John Belushi had sounded me in advance. He uh, said, we're going to go to the Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles and do a recording. Uh, and it's going to be uh, start on the 9th of September. Uh, so I said, I'll, I'll be there. I said, but I can't, I can't leave town until my daughter is born. And he gets all nervous. And I said, don't worry. My daughter is going to be uh, born on September 1st. So there's not going to be a problem. Well, daughter was not born on <laughs> September 1st. We rehearsed in New York for several days. The band leaves on the f- 4th of September to go out to Los Angeles to do some more rehearsing. And uh, so I called up Tom Scott thinking that, uh, my chair my on the Blues Brothers was trumpet, trombone, tenor sax, and barry sax. So I knew that Tom Scott could figure out a way to play the parts on some instrument mm-hmm. to make it work musically, knowing mm-hmm. that he was an experienced uh, horn arranger. So uh, Tom, uh, Tom covered the rehearsals for me And then uh, September 9th came and the show started and Tom covered for me then. Uh, So uh, I'm I'm pacing around the the loft downtown waiting for my baby to be born. And um, I decided that I would make up a fourth horn part to all the charts. I did all the horn arrangements for the Blues Brothers. So I decided I'd make up a fourth horn part. So I would uh, just show up and we would do the show with four horns and that John and Dan would like it, and they would keep Tom in the band. Because I had this um, feeling of gratitude for Tom for bailing me out of this tough situation. Sure. So uh, the, the baby was born on, uh, early in the morning on September 12th. We check out of the hospital and uh, uh, take my wife and my child home. Her parents are there and a babysitter. We've got everything set up. Uh, I jump on a plane. <laughs> Uh, I get to Los Angeles two hours before the concert. Uh, John has John has a limo waiting for me. Uh, I get to the venue, the Universal Amphitheater, which was an outdoor venue at the time, uh, one hour before the concert, and I tell everybody about my idea. And Tom's sitting there waiting, and so we d- jumped in there and um, uh, did the concert, and it was very successful. And with four horns, and uh, so Tom became a member of the Blues Brothers Band at that point. Uh, I just remember being on stage that night, and uh, it was time for my tenor sax solo, and I pointed at Tom, and Tom pointed back at me and said, (laughs) So now I'm playing a tenor sax solo in front of Tom Scott. (laughs) And that that was... uh, Anyway... uh, and, and Tom was was a member of the touring band uh, on the on the tour we did, uh, and uh, uh, both tours that we did with the with the Blues Brothers. Well, the one actually, we only did one real tour with the Blues Brothers band in 1980 when the movie came out. We did a five week tour with a, a, a chartered airplane, hmm. and uh, it was just a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> I mean, it made I a lot imagine. of good music. <laughs> yes,
1: we made a lot of good music. And uh, Tom and I are still very good friends.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah, he's an amazing musician and arranger and an amazing person.
0: Indeed, indeed. One more name, and I know this gentleman has uh, meant a great deal to you uh, musically and uh, was kind of a, a father in a way, musical father in a way, but, but the late, great Gil Evans.
1: Yes. Um, I met Gil uh, um, on his 60th birthday and uh, uh, played in his band for the last 15 years of his life. Uh, Gil was, told me amazing stories. Gil was uh, First of all, uh, Gil was a person who never got old. Uh, 70. When he was 70 years old, he said, "Hey Tom, look at my new sneakers." Then check out this new punk band I just picked up. He had a CD of a new a new group that came out. Uh, this guy never closed his mind. Uh, he kept his mind open to for new ideas, and um, he was always an inspiration to me like that. And he never acted like he was up here and I was down here. He, he it was just like we were we were on the same level, which uh, was amazing to me. So. Uh, among other things we played at Sweet Basil every Monday night for seven years and uh, between sets Gil and I would go out the back door and hang out and, mm-hmm. and talk about all kinds of stuff and the stories he told me uh, would take up an entire book mm-hmm. but uh, Gil had a very free attitude about the band too it was about free expression and it was about uh, playing what you felt and when you felt and uh, he would never assign an order of solos it was just sort of uh, Everything was supposed to happen the way it should happen. Um, a couple of quick stories. Uh, while we're hanging out back uh, uh, in the backstage, uh, behind, the, behind the club on the street, uh, a trumpet player was subbing in the band, and he was very confused about what was going on on the bandstand. So he says, Gil, when am I supposed to play? Gil said, if you feel like playing, you should play. If, if, if the band is playing the melody and you feel like playing, you should stand up and play. If somebody else is already standing up and playing a solo and you feel like playing, you should stand up and play. And if you don't feel like playing, don't play. Now the guy was just as confused as he was when he asked the question, but I knew what (laughs) Gil meant. Uh, There was another time when um, we're hanging out back on the the street and um, an older gentleman who was at the first set comes up to Gil and says, Gil, are you going to play anything from Sketches in Spain in the next set? And Gil said, we don't play that old shit anymore. We're into some new shit. Now, the guy was very confused, and he said, well, um, tell me about the good old days, Gil. And Gil said, they never were. And the guy got even further confused, and he said, wait a minute. I thought you were hanging out with Miles Davis and Charlie Parker uh, on 52nd Street back in the late 40s. Gil says, said, yeah, uh, uh, Miles and Bird were crashing on my floor. They, they had drug habits. They couldn't, get, they couldn't play in a jazz club because they couldn't get a cabaret license because of their police record. said, I was uh, an alcoholic and I was, the only reason I had an apartment was because I was writing arrangements and s- sending them out to Claude Thornhill's band on the road. Did you call those the good old days? And then the guy just left. Gil Gil was quite uh, an inspiration to me. Um, I asked Gil what his uh, voicing system was to get his unique sound, and uh, he said it was like a a barbershop quartet with one extra note added. (laughs) I did a further analysis of his arrangements, and uh, even though he said he he just fooled around on the piano until it sounded right. But uh, I did a, a mathematical analysis of some of his music, and I came up with a voicing system, and I used it in my album Standards of Living. Uh, I applied that to four horn voicings Mm -hmm. and it was basically, it usually had all three notes of the primary triad, including the fifth that most people leave out. And the other note that was in there was usually not the seventh, which is the obvious extra note to put in. Sometimes he'd have a, uh, a a five and a plus five together. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he would have, um, a, a major third and a minor third right next to each other. Uh, but it was, uh, 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 I certainly learned a lot about arranging from Gil Evans. Uh, the most significant thing he told me was when I said, uh, where did you get your musical technique, Gil? He said, I got it all from classical music. Hmm. I said, what do you mean? He says, Prelude to the Afternoon of a fawn by Debussy has all the um, 20th century harmonies in it. Hmm. So I immediately went out and got that recording and that score and analyzed it, and I saw exactly what he meant. It had all the major sevenths and major ninth chords. It had the 13 and the 13 of the flat 9. And uh, uh, that changed my whole life. Wow. And now my, my, my new career is going to be a guest soloist with uh, uh, orchestras in their uh, pop series. Uh, I'm going to be the guest artist with the University of North Texas Symphony at their gala uh, oh,
0: nice. in October. Oh, fantastic.
1: Uh, I'm sharing the bill with Eugene Rousseau.
0: Wow, that's terrific! So I have, I
1: have arranged sixteen arrangements for uh, orchestra. Wow! And I've already done a couple of gigs, so um, I'm really looking forward to this one.
0: That's awesome. Well, that spills right into my we're kind of winding down. A couple more questions, but you know, Tom, you've uh, you released two CDs as a solo artist. You every time I see you, you've got a myriad of projects on your on your plate, uh, arranging wise and playing wise. You're you're out of uh, touring and uh, playing a lot with uh, the Fab Will Willie's great. Uh, Beatles-covered band. Of course, you're still holding down the chair and uh, doing that great work at Letterman. But um, So I guess that's part of the future for you. I mean, it's amazing. You, you just described Gil Evans about how he never got old. I feel the same way with you. You're just constantly open to new stuff, and it's inspiring. Is uh, What else uh, is in, in your future in terms of projects that you have uh, in mind for the next decade or so?
1: Well, my my newest business is uh, I, I set up a little Pro Tools studio upstairs, and um, uh, people send me their Pro Tools files, and I arrange a horn section and record a horn section by myself upstairs. That's awesome. Sometimes I triple track the parts, uh, you know, do whatever is appropriate for the particular style of music. But uh, that's uh, that's my newest project.
0: Uh, you just mentioned you did something for Hanson, right? That yes, recently, yes, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I
1: did the song "I've Got Soul" from their re- recent album called Anthem, mm. and uh, uh, but I've been doing quite a, quite a few. Uh, projects, some of them not as high profile as Hansen, but mm-hmm. uh, been doing quite a bit of work like that, and uh, uh, I'm really enjoying working with the, the software Pro Tools. It's yeah. just an amazing, uh, amazing, powerful program. You've
0: always had a knack for that. It seems like your mind works in that very uh,
1: yes. high level of uh, computer land uh, and, well, and, and software. I'm encouraging uh, young people to uh, not to be afraid of technology, to just jump in there and uh, learn everything you can. Uh, there's, uh, that's the trend. That's where things are going. Mm. Uh, uh, video editing, um, sound editing, uh, com- computer-based music. Uh, I was never afraid of that. I know yeah. a lot of musicians my age were, were scared of synthesizers. I was one of the first guys to buy a synthesizer. I, had a, I bought the emulator too. Um, I bought a sequencer, a drum machine. I, you know, I got involved in, in that kind of music from the very ground floor, of JP8. Um, uh, I used to make demos at Saturday Night Live uh, for, for songs that were appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know a lot of stuff from the 80s was totally totally uh, robot music so I I learned how to produce that stuff and uh uh you can't have too much knowledge. Yeah. And you don't want to be obsolete.
0: Yeah. It's kind of it seems like it's a parallel thing to your openness as far as when back back when you were very young and learning in, new instruments it's just bring it on, you know. It's all uh, new stuff. Yeah. Yeah, just go for it. Oh yeah, a door That's opens it. and you walk through it. Yeah. Um Tom, as we close out, I just wanted to ask you one more question, in kind of an advice capacity for for young folks. But clearly, you've had just an amazing career, an amazing success, and you've uh, and you've done it on such a consistent basis for a decade after decade. It's been uh, amazing, and and it's continuing for, without question. Um, what advice would you have for a young musician out there who's you know looking at the music business that is, of course, changing all the time? But in terms of achieving success, and then you know, just like you've done, you've built on that success and you've also maintained that success. What, if it's possible to kind of capsulize that down to your thought process, what, what, what might that be?
1: Well, as far as specific musical advice, I would advise young musicians to uh, uh, practice hard because that's the only way you can improve. Uh, learn as many songs as you can by memory, uh, be able in all styles, be able to play those songs in any key, uh, learn to improvise. Learn to sight-read music. Uh, But the most important advice I have for a young musician who wants to be professional is, be nice to everybody. Now, uh, you may think to yourself, well, you know, my mother told me that. Well, your mother was right. (laughs) Uh, uh, if, If a band leader has a choice of hiring you or somebody else, and you both play on the same level, He's going to hire the nicest person of the two. And uh, there's no reason not to be nice to everybody. You never know who's going to end up where. You never know who's going to open a door for you. Uh, In my own life, I remember um, a fellow who was a page at Saturday Night Live. And most people treated the pages as if they were uh, lesser than, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with, with no respect. Uh, I always thought of everybody as being the same. I think in God's eyes, the same guy that cleans the toilet is on the same level as the CEO of the corporation. Mm-hmm. That's my viewpoint on uh, on life. And uh, this guy was a nice young kid, and we became friends. And then one day he says, I got," it. he says, Bones, I got a new job. Congratulations, what are you doing? He says, he's going to NBC Sports. <laughs> so I said, congratulations, dude. He says, if I ever need a, a, a band leader, I'm going to call you. And I didn't really think about it too long, but... I just said, sure. Well, the same guy called me back. Now now he's the um, producer of the Fox uh, Sports Show on the TV station in Chicago. And he calls me up. Do you think you can write a theme for us? (laughs) Yes. And then he calls me up. He says, I'm going to produce four TV shows for Coca-Cola at the Super Bowl in Atlanta. Leading up to the Super Bowl in Atlanta, would you like to be the music director? Yes. So there's an example of somebody that most people dissed. Yeah. Uh, That's the way your karma comes back. Just be nice to everybody. I have another story, which um, I shouldn't tell, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, I had a a friend on Saturday Night Live um, who was kind of a hothead, and he thought he was better than everybody, and he uh, was always putting people down and dissing people, and uh, um, and one one day he he got mad at his manager, and he fired his manager. Okay, now... Uh, Fifteen years later, he's up for a big movie part at Universal Pictures. And he was the obvious choice for this movie. I'm not going to mention the guy's name. And I'm not going to mention the movie.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, but he was the perfect guy for this role. Now, guess who the president of Universal is now? The manager that he fired. <laughs> and this guy would not sign off on the movie. He would not... He would not sign the movie until this fellow was written out of the script. They, would, they wouldn't sign the movie. They wouldn't sign the movie. So finally, they said they got John Goodman instead. Mm. And they signed, the guy immediately signed the deal. He actually weakened his own pro- project. He weakened his own product for his company by making this decision for his own personal vendetta. But that's the way the, the, the world works. Uh, just be nice to everybody and you'll quickly find out how fast things will happen Mm -hmm. in a positive manner.
0: That's some great advice, both musically and personally. And I know from my personal experience, I don't get to see you as often as I'd like and get to work together. I feel the same way. But whenever I see you, it puts a smile on my face, and you you make people feel good around you, both musically and personally. And I think it's uh, great words to live by. Tom, thank you so much. Again, I know you're running to do two shows, and then you're flying to Amsterdam to do a bunch of work. So there's a... You're, you're uh, the hardest working man in show business these days. But thanks for taking time out uh, and spending some time with us here today. Very, thank you also for all the inspiration you've given all of us over the years, uh, musically and personally, and uh, continued success with everything. We look forward to everybody watching Tom on David Letterman, but also with all his, uh, his own projects and other things that he's doing. So uh, once again, thanks so much, Tom. My pleasure, Mike. We will, uh, we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick.